0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The year's most memorable interviews and listeners' calls on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back for 2022 with Jane Brown.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Best of Fight Back 2022 Part 1 of our look back at the year that was. Well, this time last year, just when we thought COVID-19 was behind us, the Omicron variant took us by storm and prompted the beginning of a new style of lockdown— At the beginning of 2022, the Ford PCs at Queen's Park introduced a temporary move to a modified Step 2 of the Roadmap to Reopen, Schools were back to online learning, while hospitals were ordered to pause all non-emergent and non-urgent surgeries to preserve critical care capacity. Indoor dining rooms, gyms, and other indoor gathering spaces closed, while personal care services and retail stores became limited to 50% capacity, and indoor social gatherings were capped at five. While filling in for Libby during the first full week of January, I got reaction from our strategy panel, Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village, Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister, and John Capobianco, a Conservative strategist and senior vice president, senior partner at Fleischmann-Hillard High Road.
2: If you look at all the healthcare professionals, they've got one single interest, and it's obviously to make sure that that people's health is looked after, the hospitals and beds are available. Then you look at businesses, big and small. They've got their own interests, so when they have these competing interests where businesses are saying to the premier, you've got to keep us open. We can't afford another lockdown. We, we can do this. We've got all the right method, methods and, and cleaning services. And then you've got healthcare care saying, no, no, you have to lock us down the minute they have something happening, a pandemic. That's what the governments are dealing with. So it's easy for someone to say, well, we should have locked down two weeks ago. We should have locked down the minute Omicron came on. But when you have businesses who are surviving and you've got people who are relying on jobs for their livelihood, saying look it we can do this we can withstand this premier ford did the best he could based on making sure that he saw what was going on with omicron with the cases over the course of the last of a while and then when he finally realized that hospital beds and, and hospitalizations were going up he shut it down mm-hmm. and of course now people are saying well it's not too, it's not too late it's too too soon and you're never going to make anybody happy but i think the fact is if everybody gets vaccinated, if you get the if you get the vaccine and the booster shots as much as you can and on testing, then things will you know, will be under control. But you can't there's no there's no single bullet solution to this.
1: Karen, yesterday's announcement, I know you're as the CEO of Variety Village, it's personal, right? It means you're shut down again as of tomorrow. Yeah, and you know, I,
3: I kinda disagree actually with, with John and that everyone's doing the best they can because What has been consistently absent from this government is a strategy for how we're going to deal with what we know. And 12 weeks ago, one of the members of the science panel said, or not 12 weeks ago, sorry, a few weeks ago, he said, in the next 12 weeks, every single person is going to be exposed to this virus unless you're a hermit. So we knew. There's nothing that's unfolding now that we didn't know. But nobody at the time stood up and said, in light of that, we are going to keep the schools open. And here's how we're going to do it. In light of that, here's how we're going to keep businesses open, and here's how we're going to do it. No one said any of that. They, they handed out the test kits willy-nilly at the liquor store as if, like, what was that going to do? Instead of actually keeping them so that when the kids went back to school that they could be used in a strategic way. So I'm sitting here as a citizen, aside from the fact that my business is closed again, and I can't lay off my staff anymore because I've already laid them off twice. So now I'm just going to pay them because I, I, I don't want them to go somewhere else. And my kids aren't in school because online is not actually learning and so i'm thinking i'm sitting here wondering in light of everything that we knew in light of all the decisions that we could have made nobody said the messaging that we needed to hear that yes you know what if you get vaccinated you're probably going to get covid and your symptoms are going to be mild and here's how we need to look at this and here's what we're going to be up against and here's how we need to now consider quarantine and here's how we're going to get the kids to school
1: it's been 26 weeks, half of an entire year that students in Ontario have been learning virtually. And, and so much has been made of that. Uh, Charles, just to go over to you, that more should have been done earlier. So at least the children could physically be in the classrooms this week. And, and had we shut everything down, two, three weeks ago in anticipation of going back to school after the winter break. It you know, it might have been different for the schools at the very least.
4: Oh absolutely. I mean I was with two teachers yesterday uh, watching the news and they're infuriated because they have children themselves. They're trying to manage their classrooms while still attending to their own children in their home and they're frustrated because everything seems to be doing seems to be done last minute. And it's indecisive. I mean, they go back and forth with some of the decisions. Um, The the realization is that good government is paramount in these issues. And that means the the notion initially by Doug Ford and some of the other members from the federal government who are conservative want to have less government uh, in the situations that we have had in the past. But slashing and privatizing these vital services are not the answer. We need to ensure that ahead of time we would have had some of those services ready and some of those strategies in place to ensure that the students would still be in school. And the biggest problem isn't the COVID virus itself. It's just the mental health of some of these students, these young people that are suffering and not having socialization and the stress it's putting on families.
1: Charles Souza, former liberal Ontario finance minister, who earlier this month became the new MP for Mississauga Lakeshore. John Capobianco, a conservative strategist and senior vice president, senior partner at Fleischman-Hillard High Road, and Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village, who make up the strategy panel. It would be nearly another month before we were allowed to go back to restaurants, gyms, and movie theaters, while business owners of these establishments were only allowed 50% capacity. This is Zoomer Radio's best of fight back 2022. I'm Jane Brown. The anti COVID vaccine mandate movement began ramping up through January. It came to a head in mid-February when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act to end a three-week trucker's occupation of downtown Ottawa. Earlier in February, we marveled at how the anti-vaccine mandate demonstration in Toronto took place, mostly without incident and on a single day. It was on a Saturday, and Toronto police had closed off Hospital Row along University Avenue and surrounding streets to ensure that protesters did not impede access to the hospitals, which ended up being a successful approach. By then, in Ottawa, it had already been 10 days of the demonstration and occupation, while the Canadian capital was placed under a state of emergency. To discuss the contrast in the tale of two cities, Libby was joined for a conversation by Dr. Stephanie Carvin, assistant professor of international affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa and an expert on national security issues, then city councillor Kristen Wong-Tam and Dr. Kevin Smith, CEO of the University Health Network.
5: You know what our staff? Uh, really gave us great feedback about getting to work. Our patients, who are very anxious, as you can imagine, particularly our Princess Margaret site or our Emerge sites, um, who are very nervous about coming in. Really, the police really helped them get to the environment, and it was very, very well done. And I also want to thank the protesters, who uh, did respect the police presence and respect the importance of um, protesting civilly and moving, uh, moving along quickly um, so that the uh, p- patients were not interrupted any more than they had to be. It really went as well as it could have.
6: I'm glad to hear that. Councillor Wong-Tam, uh, I'm sure that when you look at your colleagues in Ottawa, you're probably pretty happy with the way it went here in your ward in downtown.
7: Uh, yes,
8: I am. I'm very pleased to see the outcome from this weekend's uh, organizations. Uh Both the Toronto Police and the City of Toronto, I agree with Dr. Smith, uh, deserve our thanks. They have been very proactive in communicating a response plan, knowing that the protesters were coming uh, to the city. We had the advantage of seeing what was unfolding in Ottawa, and we were not going to take any chances. So, the response was going to always be multifaceted, uh, and we were going to create that sort of inner no-go zone uh, within the core of the city, which meant that, of course, pedestrians and protesters on foot could come, come through, uh, private passenger vehicles with so some limitation could come in, but not the oversized vehicles that we saw in Ottawa.
6: Okay, let's bring in Dr. Stephanie Carvin. You are an expert in national security. There are people who say this whole thing is threatening national security in Ottawa. I
7: think there's elements that uh, certainly ring to national security when you have, you know, a group of people who have, you know, basically uh, the the organizers of this convoy, not everyone in the convoy, but the organizers themselves who have said some fairly Islamophobic, anti-Semitic and conspiratorial uh, views. Uh, There's definitely a national security element there. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we should be using national security elements to solve this problem. I'm tremendously disturbed by uh, the leadership of the city of Ottawa, who's basically been trying to kick all of its problems up to the federal government rather than trying to use policing solutions. I mean, I'm not going to pretend it's easy or fun, but, you know, there is a role for national security here, but certainly I'm not convinced it's rolling the tanks into the city capital.
6: Ottawa residents feel completely abandoned and under siege, especially with that incessant honking.
7: Yeah, it really is a bleak situation. Um, the the, the incessant noise you know, and, and then of course just the mental stress of all of that. So, um yeah, and it, it just doesn't help when you have a you know, a police force that said that they're not sure that there is a policing solution. And even when, you know, I, I was just uh looking at, at Twitter when he was just doing his press conference just a few minutes ago, um, you know, it totally says that they're cutting the these uh protesters off from fuel, but there's like Like Lots of reporters are showing video of of fuel being taken to these trucks to refuel them um, right as he was speaking. It's just not clear that anything is is still being enforced, even if there is uh, more action being taken.
6: Dr. Kevin Smith, what would you like to leave us with? Yeah, I would first like to say thank
5: you to uh, all who were, who were participants in uh, making sure the weekend in Toronto allowed people to peacefully and respectfully protest and then move out of the way so that patients weren't negatively affected. Particularly, I didn't acknowledge Councillor Wong Kim herself, uh, Mayor Tory, the chief, the the chief of police and uh, all of the PPS services who made a huge, huge difference here. And we see what would have happened if we hadn't had uh, leadership at all levels of government.
6: Uh, Councillor Wong-Tam?
8: I would think that it's time for Ottawa to treat the lead organizers as terrorists and to seize their personal accounts. I know it's a dramatic uh, call, but uh, in the absence of any other solution, it, it will get their attention
1: then-Toronto City Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam, Dr. Kevin Smith, CEO of the University Health Network, and Dr. Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa. This conversation took place on Monday, February 7th, four days before Premier Doug Ford declared a state of emergency for Ontario in order to use emergency powers to to crack down on those who continued to occupy downtown Ottawa and block the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor. Ahead of a vote in Parliament on the Trudeau Liberals' decision February 14th to invoke the Emergencies Act, the opposition Conservatives and Bloc Québécois MPs called it a huge overreach they would not support. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh announced his members would support it reluctantly, mostly because he said the Prime Minister let the anti-mandate Ottawa occupation go on for too long without doing anything to end it. Not all the premiers were on side. The first ministers of Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta and Nova Scotia, all conservatives, said the Federal Emergencies Act was not necessary in their provinces. But PC Premier Doug Ford here in Ontario said he was behind Justin Trudeau on the move. As for how Canadians were feeling, a Maru public opinion poll at that time showed two-thirds of Canadians supported the Prime Minister's move on the Emergencies Act, with as many as 82% of respondents saying the blockades and occupations were allowed to go on for too long. Christine Van Gein is Litigation Director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation. David Tarrant is a Conservative Strategist and Vice President at National Strategic Communications. And John Wright is Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion. They joined Libby for a discussion on the 17th of February.
9: Canadians are incredibly frustrated that this has gone on as long as it has. Um, you can see a, a real anger that the institutions themselves have become apparently impotent. And the backdrop for all of this is not just the Windsor Bridge or Coots in Alberta. It's, it's primarily uh, downtown Ottawa with a backdrop of the parliament buildings where allegedly the most powerful minister uh, you know, in the country uh, can't come out in front and sort of say, get off my lawn. It's just not happening. And so he's impotent from doing that because he can't, direct the police, I guess the question would be whether or not this in its, in its actual making is to put the RCMP on, on the same, civili- same civilian police footing as everybody else so they can all go and do what they have to do with the job. But I think that the public is supporting this very symbolically. They don't understand the details of it. Uh, oftentimes uh, in politics people don't. Mr. and Mrs. French Porch have heard about this, but the sentiment underlying it by at least between 70 and 80% of the public is, stop this. It's gone on long enough. I don't care what it's about anymore, or you should be able to remove them. And that's the frustration. So the prime minister's brought in something which may be, everybody may be right. It may be a complete overreach when, in fact, what's necessary is the police to move in and do something. But to the Canadian public, their growing anger, their growing frustration on the impotence of politicians and the institutions over the last number of weeks, have now accepted this as yet another tool. They may not understand it, but, you know, a tool to end this because they see the consequences of it and they see the impotence of the institutions to deal with it.
6: David Tarrant, I mean, one of the things people looking at this say, hey, uh, the blockades at the Ambassador Bridge and in Coots were resolved without the Emergencies Act.
10: Yeah, I mean, well, in the case of, uh the ambassador bridge I mean the province declared a state of emergency yeah and and those emergency powers did help um, uh, uh, police forces w- w- with that situation uh you know i, I think the 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 ultimate situation the ultimate sin or a better word of the federal government and or, or the city of ottawa or of, of ottawa police is they were clearly uh, unprepared they clearly did not had no uh Underestimated the the uh, the intensity uh, of of the, of this of this occupation and protest movement. They were caught off guard, and by the time they they wrapped their head around what 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 had happened, the protesters were dug in. This is a politician who completely lost the plot in terms of a massive uh, a security breakdown on his front doorstep, and and that's a real concern here. Like like this is this is this is all reactive. It's all dictated by public opinion. It's not actually driven with with any kind of long-term plan about how do we restore order and protect the public.
6: Christine Van Gein, it's kind of hard to believe that this is part of some nefarious plot to cancel our civil liberties. Um, Why do you think it's dangerous?
7: I think that this is dangerous because this is extraordinary legislation. Um, It gives the federal government special powers to deal with emergencies, it puts the federal government into provincial jurisdiction. Uh, and that's why the threshold for invoking this legislation is so high. And we don't want to be in a situation where our governments govern by emergency order. And we've seen this creepingly increasing throughout the past two years. And this is kind of the pinnacle of that. It's, it's not justified to use these extraordinary powers of declaring national emergency when we can see it can be dealt with during using existing legislation.
1: Christine Van Guyen, Litigation Director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation. David Tarrant, Conservative Strategist and Vice President at National Strategic Communications. And John Wright, Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion. You're listening to part one of The Best of Fight Back 2022 on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Still to come, the war in Ukraine begins as the world unites against Russia's Vladimir Putin.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. It was the best of times on the best of Fight Back for 2022 with Jane Brown on Zuma Radio.
1: Welcome back. We hope you're enjoying this special edition of Fight Back as we look back on the year that was 2022. Vladimir Putin's Russian war on Ukraine began February 24th, with democracies around the world united in condemnation against the invasion of the sovereign nation. The assault began late on a Wednesday in what then became an all-out, full-scale and deadly war, which continues to this day. Russia's leader and his foreign minister called for Ukraine to drop ambitions of joining NATO. But it was also widely believed as the war began that Vladimir Putin would not be happy until he could bring Ukraine into a reinvented Soviet Union. Financial sanctions were quickly announced against Russia, which experts said correctly the Putin regime could resist for some time. The day after the war began, Libby was joined by an esteemed panel of experts, Dr. Andrei Zayarnyuk, professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, Janice Stein at the University of Toronto, and Peter Storin, president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, Toronto Branch.
11: It's been challenging for my wife's family that's actually in the eastern part of Ukraine, which is was already just 100 kilometers from from the conflict zone. Uh, she hasn't been able to get through. Unfortunately, we believe the phone lines are already down, uh, and power is being cut in a lot of areas. So it's uh, very disheartening.
6: Mm-hmm. And have you uh, reached people in other parts of the country?
11: Uh, yes, uh, I have, and uh, it's uh, it's pretty much everything you're seeing in the in the news. So. People are scared. People are angry. Uh, People are reacting in different ways. Men are joining the reserves. Uh, Other families are trying to find places uh, for safety. Uh, Some people have uh, ended up being in in bomb shelters. A lot of uh, people are hiding out in the subways. Um, It's it's horrific. It's beyond words.
6: Janice Stein, it's been called uh, the worst aggression since the Second World War. How do you see it? Oh, I think that's absolutely right. It is clearly an act
12: of unprovoked aggression. Um, I watched Putin's speech, as I'm sure we all did, and you saw a very angry, uh, revisionist, um, and aggressive leader with a group of really terrified advisors around him who are clearly unable to offer any kind of dissenting opinion. I would just say, and this is just, it's tragic, uh, for Ukrainians. I think, uh, Russia will pay dearly for this over time. Um, it will retard Russia's development. It will cut it off in many important ways from the West for a decade. Um, I think this will prove to be a major miscalculation by Vladimir Putin.
6: Dr. Zeyrnyuk, you teach about the Soviet Union. Uh, A lot of the commentary is that this is what Putin is trying to do to recreate the Soviet Union. He's been called a megalomaniac. Uh, What's your take on that?
13: I would be careful with historical parallels. The Soviet Union after World War II didn't annex a single piece of territory. So what Putin did in 2014 and now again is actually unprecedented, even from the point of view of Soviet leadership and Soviet, Soviet history. I mean, the last time Ukrainian cities uh, saw an attack like this one was at the beginning of World War II. On the 1st of September 1939, when Germans bombed Lviv, and then in June, 1941, when they, they bombed Kyiv, Kharkiv, Odessa, and other Ukrainian cities.
6: Is this just the beginning? That's one of the warnings that uh, it's not going to end with Ukraine. I mean, it's
13: not the beginning. It's a war. It's an all-out war. It's a humanitarian catastrophe. It's a catastrophe for the international law. And it also tells something about the West and the whole architecture of security the West is pretending to uphold. The West did too little, too late to help Ukraine. And even now, after those airstrikes, with the combat taking place all over Ukraine, there is no real help coming from the West.
12: Janice Stein. Libby, I'm thinking about public reaction at home. It's easy to make statements of support. But the economic sanctions that we've all been talking about are taking place in an inflationary environment. Canadian consumers are going to see increases in prices as a result, and what I'm hopeful, but we have a lot of work to do to explain why it matters, I'm hopeful that the public will continue to support these economic sanctions once they understand they're not only going to bite Russia, they're
1: going to bite in the West as well. Jana Stein, founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, Dr. Andrei Zayarnyuk, professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, and Peter Sturin, president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, Toronto branch. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back 2022. I'm Jane Brown. Putin's war against Ukraine took an almost immediate and ominous turn in early March, as Russian forces attacked more civilian targets while there were a growing number of Ukrainian civilian deaths. And then there was the daily increase in the number of women, children, and families losing their homes and fleeing the country— Men aged 18 to 60 were and are still required to stay in case they are needed to fight. But the early days of the attack on Ukraine did not go as Putin expected. The Russian dictator thought he would easily overrun Ukraine and would have a quick victory. Instead, Russian forces met with stiff resistance and almost universal condemnation around the world, in addition to tough sanctions against Russia, Putin, and his henchmen and Russian oligarchs. We wondered if all of the pushback would make Putin more dangerous. He had already announced he had put his nuclear forces on alert. And how real was and is the nuclear threat? On March 2nd, Libby talked about all of these issues with a panel of experts. Dr. Roland Paris, a professor of international affairs and the director of the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Lucan Way, professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. And Dr. Charles Kupchan, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations.
14: I think that uh, this shift in the Russian strategy is a response to the fact that the initial invasion did not go as smoothly and quickly as Putin and his officials, his military officials, expected. Uh, I think that Putin really believed what he said in his speeches, that is to say that this is a neo-Nazi regime in Ukraine and behind every Ukrainian as a wannabe Russian We'll send our troops in mm-hmm. and the Ukrainians will fold. Well, the opposite is happening. The Ukrainian military is putting up a great fight. The Ukrainian people are seething. And I'm unfortunately my prediction is that Russia will turn up the heat, will go after civilian targets, and that it is more likely than not that they are able to take over major Cities in eastern Ukraine, including Kiev.
6: Dr. Luke Wei, what do you think?
15: No, I mostly agree. I mean, I think that um, they, you know, they, Putin clearly, you know, does not understand Ukrainian politics, and he really believed his own rhetoric that that the Ukrainian government was a puppet government, which would, you know, just a little push and the whole thing would collapse. Um, and that has absolutely not happened at all. I mean, this is you know not totally surprising to the rest of us. Uh, but certainly it was to Putin, and um, and so basically, you know, Putin's in a position where he's feeling desperate. He's he's suffered enormous uh, sanctions, and what I worry about, I'm, I share concerns of uh, of Doctor Kupchan that you know a desperate Russia is a very violent Russia, and so I think we're likely to see a lot of um, you know extreme levels of civilian casualties. You know, I, I still think that you know there's a chance that that Ukraine could hold out, uh, mainly because. You know, it's true that the Ukrainian army is much smaller than the Russian army. They, they, you know, traditionally have spent about a tenth of what the Russian army has spent on, on military, and they're much less, you know, uh, experience. I mean, the Russians have been in, in, in Syria and in Chechnya, and there's sort of, many of them. Not all of them are battle hardened, but you know, that in, in Ukraine you have the entire population behind the government. People have begun referring to it as the 40 million army which I think is really appropriate. You have even sort of people who are disabled, you know, out there making Molotov cocktails and the like. So I think that, that you know, it's going to be extremely horrific and bloody, but I think Ukraine still has a chance to sort of hold on to major cities.
6: Dr. Paris, what do you think?
16: I am just as concerned as your other two guests with what lies ahead. Uh, you know, there's, there's, clearly there's frustration on the part of russia and their default uh, military strategy is one of brute force and uh, now they the numbers are clearly on russia's side uh, and they can pour more numbers into this battle on the other hand the morale is on the ukrainian side and the longer they can hold out the more pressure there will be on putin not just because these um really unprecedented economic sanctions Will bite, uh, are having an effect, major effect on the Russian economy and likely also on powerful people within Russia who have not necessarily felt that kind of pressure before. But also because the vigor of the Ukrainian defense has inflicted real costs in terms of uh, battlefield deaths on the Russians themselves. The longer this goes on, the harder it will be for Putin to shield from his own people the extent of the combat that's taking place in Ukraine.
1: Dr. Roland Paris, a professor of international affairs and the director of the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Lucan Wei, professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. And Dr. Charles Cupchin, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you for joining us on this Boxing Day for part one of the Best of Fightback 2022. Coming up next, a Toronto institution gets a name change as Canada's reconciliation of injustice against Indigenous people continues.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back 2022 with Jane Brown.
1: Welcome back to a special edition of Fight Back as we continue looking back at the events of 2022. In April, Toronto Metropolitan University became the new Ryerson. A decision had been made at the downtown university to change the name after it came to light that the university's namesake, Edgerton Ryerson, was involved in the creation of the notorious residential school system for Indigenous children. Ryerson University is my alma mater. It was actually Ryerson Polytechnical Institute when I attended in the mid 1980s and earned my Bachelor of Applied Arts in radio and television. So it will always be Ryerson to me, but the name Toronto Metropolitan University is certainly bland and generic enough not to offend anyone. As the change was announced, Libby had a discussion about it with a panel of invested individuals. Indigenous elder Kat Krieger, who works extensively in secondary and post-secondary institutions, history professor Dr. Ronald Stagg, and politics and public administration professor Dr. Patrice Dutille, both from the newly declared Toronto Metropolitan University.
17: Toronto Metropolitan was, was on the short list. A lot of people thought it would be either the City University of Toronto or Toronto Metropolitan or something benign like that. Uh, I'm not surprised by the choice, but, you know, it's the predictable outcome of a broken process. What, what more can I say?
6: Dr. Stagg, I mean, does when we introduce you that way, does it have the gravitas of an important educational institution?
18: I must admit, it's very bland, and again, I think that's what they went for, something that identifies it with Toronto, uh, but won't offend anybody. And the whole idea of taking Edgerton Ryerson's name off was to get to a point where nobody would be offended.
6: Kat Krieger, what do you think?
18: Well, you know, many names have been
19: changed with the, um, through colonization, of course, and... Um, or will have been changed. TMU kind of sounds neat to me. It just rolls off the tongue. (laughs) And I was recognizing, uh, you know, it's one of the students saying, it's hard to take in how this changes. And I imagine what it must have been like a long time ago when many things were renamed and how it was for people to to take that or accept that. So I I kind of look at it as a new beginning. Um, You know, what things remind us of. And... What, what should it remind us of? So it's, you know, for me, I've seen so many things, including my own name, change over the years. So I'm accepting of this. I'm not sure what we want to be reminded to when we walk through the doors of higher education and what does it inspire when we walk into that place.
6: Hmm. Dr. Dutil, you were talking about a flawed process. How so?
17: Oh, the whole thing was, was, was completely, uh, completely flawed. From the very beginning, the administration wanted the name change, and it organized uh, a fake process uh, to move it there. Um, you know, the everything from creating a fake committee of of people who had absolutely no idea of what the Ryerson legacy was. He was condemned for a four letter, a four page letter, uh, and you know, there is no way he was the architect of residential schools, but. You know, he stands today condemned, and the university has gotten rid of his reputation, which is very unfortunate.
6: Dr. Stagg, do you agree with that?
17: Oh, completely. They should have been
18: up front. The, 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 the committee that did this should have been up front and just said, we do not want any Euro-Canadian white man or settler, as uh, the term is now used, uh, as the the symbol of this university. And then we could have had an open debate. You know, would this help with reconciliation? Instead, they came up with this nonsense. Uh, Eventually, they came down and said, no, he wasn't responsible for residential schools. As Patrice said, the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission said the same thing. But this idea has been put out there saying he was responsible for residential schools. and That's what everybody believes now. It's not true.
6: want to get Kat Krieger's view of this.
18: You know, I, th- I think when we move quickly on
19: things, maybe we don't have enough information. So I'm, I'm not saying pro or con here, but the idea of who was this person, what did they contribute, and does the good outweigh the possible bad? Or is it uh, a time when things are changing again? As I said some time back, many names changed in this area. And are we moving forward with this actual name change? You know, the the first thought that comes to mind is, not responding to the concept of what is nowadays cyber bullying and i don't want to see anybody bullied in any way shape or form um how can we welcome people back into the form uh the the, the community how can we balance things out um and at the same time if, if somebody needs to be called out for something can we do that
1: Elder Kat Krieger, who works extensively in secondary and post-secondary institutions. History professor Dr. Ronald Stegg and politics and public administration professor Dr. Patrice Dutile, both of Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson University. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back 2022. I'm Jane Brown. It was a shocking development that was seen as having significant ramifications on American politics and women in the U.S. On Monday, May 2nd, a draft U.S. Supreme Court decision was leaked, suggesting justices might consider overturning Roe v. Wade, the 1973 landmark decision that made abortion legal in the United States. The next day, it was confirmed the draft was authentic, but also that a final decision may be different. We wondered at the time if this draft came to pass, which it did on June 24th, what would be the ramifications here in Canada? Abortion was decriminalized in this country in 1988, but a woman's right to a safe abortion has never been enshrined in law. On the 4th of May, Libby was joined by a panel of experts from both sides of the Canada-U.S. border. Dr. Nancy Dowd, Professor of Law at the University of Florida. Dr. Joanna Erdman, Associate Professor of Law, McBain Chair in Health Law and Policy at Dalhousie University in Halifax. And Dr. David Cohen professor of law at Drexel University's Thomas R. Klein School of Law in Philadelphia.
20: The leaked opinion pulls no punches. It is a full-throated rejection of Roe v. Wade and abortion rights. So people who support them are expressing their frustration and outrage. But people who have been trying to overturn Roe v. Wade for half a century now are celebrating, or at least tentatively celebrating that they think finally the time has come. They've been working on this for decades, and it seems like their goal is in grasp.
6: Dr. Erdman, were you surprised that this draft, it doesn't even have any exceptions? It doesn't have exceptions for rape, or, or incest, or even the mother's health?
7: Well, and indeed, uh, the opinion and Alito's uh, writing suggests that all of those issues can be returned to the state, uh, and state by state, they can make decisions, and let's be frank, on the lives and health of people. I think the public reaction, the massive protests in the U.S. and worldwide says it all. The reaction is not just about coming restrictions on people's access to critical health care, It's really a reaction to the profound disrespect that the U.S. Supreme Court justices show, not just to people who support abortion rights, but those who have and need abortion. The opinion shows how little this court cares about people.
6: Dr. Cohen, would you see this as as an assault on women's agency over their own bodies? Is that what it's about or what else is behind it?
20: Yeah, I mean I think the group of justices that have been assembled on the Supreme Court right now, the there are six conservative justices, five of whom are very conservative, and they don't care. They don't care about women's rights, they don't care about racial justice, they don't care about LGBTQ rights. They've made that clear in their writings. The people who appointed them have made that clear, and I think this is frankly the first of many decisions that are going to come in the next year or two. That we are going to see a, a really quick um, a, a return to a time when a lot of these rights weren't recognized, and this group of justices—they're on a mission. Um, so this this opinion absolutely shows that they do not care about women's rights. They do not care about women's bodily autonomy, um, and that's just some of many rights that they don't care about.
6: I'd like to bring in Dr. Nancy Dowd, who is a professor of law at the University of. Florida. So, what is the situation in Florida? Are there uh, restrictive abortion laws there as well?
8: Conservative abortion laws would are definitely uh, in place and in the legislative um, uh, pipeline. But we also have a state constitution that um, has an express right to privacy. Uh, so, and therefore, the right to um, uh, reproductive rights are protected under that state constitutional provision. So you would expect a a hyper conservative um, uh, response from Florida, except for the fact that our state constitution will provide um, some protection. So the question is
6: how much? Dr. Cohen, what do you think happens next? Look,
20: I think that none of us know the future for sure. So there's always a possibility. But I think it's very unlikely for a couple of reasons. One, we know the court is very conservative, and this is consistent with that. But two, they've given every indication that this is where they're going, which is why what happened Monday doesn't surprise a lot of us. And that's going to put the ball in the court of state legislators and the president and other Democrats in Congress to not just express outrage but to actually do something and enact legislation nationally and state in states that support abortion rights to further access and protect people who travel. So the, really the balls in the court of people who the pro-choice politicians to act.
1: Libby's conversation on the 4th of May with Dr. Nancy Dowd, Professor of Law at the University of Florida, Dr. Joanna Erdman, Associate Professor of Law, McBain Chair in Health Law and Policy at Dalhousie University in Halifax, and Dr. David Cohen, Professor of Law at Drexel University's Thomas R. Klein School of Law in Philadelphia. On June 24th, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the landmark Roe v. Wade ruling that had guaranteed the right to an abortion for more than 50 years. This created a grim new reality for women's health in the U.S. while granting a significant victory to religious conservatives you're listening to part one of the best of fight back 2022 on Zoomer radio I'm Jane Brown Doug Ford was re-elected in a sweeping majority as Ontario's premier on June 2nd but with a record low voter turnout. Ahead of the election, many voters—in fact, many callers to fight back—expressed unhappiness with the way the governing Ford Tories let the health care and long-term care systems become overwhelmed during the pandemic and did not trust his ability to fix them. But elect him they did, and we waited to see if Doug Ford would follow through on his seniors' platform— While filling in for Libby, I was joined on the Monday after the election by Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, and David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. I first asked David if he felt that affordability issues around groceries and gas trumped elder issues.
21: I'm not sure that any one set of issues... Trump, than any other said. I think there was a general contentment to let it rest in for its hands. Uh, I think the low turnout by default is a grudging content with the way things are overall. I don't think any one issue uh, either drove people to the polls to vote for him or certainly didn't drive anybody to vote against him.
1: No, that is very true. D- Daryl, your thoughts on the reelection? Uh, and did it turn out the way that you thought it would as a pollster?
21: Uh,
22: in terms of the polling numbers, exactly as we thought it would turn out. In fact, uh, our final poll that we put out the day before is almost exactly what the, the result was, so there was no surprise. Um, the level of turnout was a surprise. Uh, I think that uh, um, 43% is shockingly low. I think it might even be an historic record mm-hmm. for Ontario. So that was a, a bit of a surprise, but it didn't affect the uh, uh, the, um, the accuracy of what the polling was saying about about the outcome. Uh, and basically, David is right. I mean, if this was an issues-driven campaign, if people were out there voting because they uh, particularly focused on uh, one specific issue or they had a real sense of what the parties were offering up, then the result probably wouldn't, would have been different. Uh, but as it was, people were just basically saying, look, uh, status quo is fine for now. We've had enough change over the space of the last while. I'd really like to settle down and I think our government needs to settle down. So, uh, Doug Ford, you get a a free pass and the progressive conservatives get a free pass this time around. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you'll get one the next time around, but at this point, uh, people are satisfied enough. In fact, 55% of the people who we interviewed said they were satisfied with the government, which is, well, you know, 14 point, 14 points higher than those that said they actually, uh, 14 points higher than the, the percentage that actually voted for them. So um, he was in a really, really strong position. People knew what the outcome was going to be uh, pretty much from the very start of the campaign. The numbers really didn't move. And uh, it was a campaign almost like it didn't happen.
1: Daryl, were you able to drill down on that vote of confidence? Why 41% of the people who did vote voted for Doug Ford?
22: Yeah, I think it was just more of an identification that... uh, On the issues that they were good on, which were mostly economic, they were good on them. And on the issues that they weren't seen as necessarily as good on, for example, healthcare, managing the COVID crisis, some of the issues that relate to, I would say, you know, things like inequality and that kind of thing, that they were in the game enough that it wasn't enough to defeat them. So none of those issues that were ones where they were significantly behind. Um, were things that were top of mind for people as they were voting in the election campaign. So, for example, in healthcare, uh, uh, Andrew Horvath and the, uh, and the NDP were well ahead on that issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Doug Ford, you know, was, uh, you know, in the game, at least. I mean, even though the, uh, the NDP was well ahead, but not in such a way that it became the ballot question and people said, I have to vote for the NDP. The reason we know that is we see the results.
21: David, do you want to comment on that? I, I completely agree. I think an interesting uh, thing that hit me on this is that um, there could be issues where the voters don't think anybody can really solve it with policy statements during the election. Health care is a very complicated issue, even if you don't like what he did. Uh, I would argue that the NDP was massively the biggest losers in the election. I think they've got a real question to ask themselves about why didn't this resonate more strongly. Um, I think the voters think health is a tough nut to crack. They're not very happy with Ford, but I don't think they feel there's some magic answer sitting out there. And how come Ford doesn't have it? You know, and right. she does. It, they didn't see it that way.
1: My conversation back on Monday, June 6th, with David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, and Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us for a special look back at the first half of 2022. I'm Jane Brown. Be sure to join me tomorrow at noon for part two of the Best of Fight Back 2022.
0: You've been listening to the best of Fight Back 2022 with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Produced for MZ Media Limited by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hattie. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.